0: Hello there, Terry here with the Animation Industry Podcast. You will want to give today's episode a listen if you're just starting out in stop motion because I got a very well-known and expert animator to go over exactly what you need to set up a beginner stop motion studio in your bedroom but while still giving your videos a super professional look. So he is gonna go over the specific lights, camera, software equipment, and setup that you need, but that won't break the bank for you either, especially because all this stuff can cost you a lot of money if you don't know what you're looking for. Plus, he is going to give you some of the pro tips and editing hacks that the professional studios use, and he's gonna answer some of the most asked questions when it comes to making a short film. But before I get into today's episode, I am really happy to be able to offer you something very special. So the other day I was chatting with my friend Mark Spess and you might be familiar with his work. He is an amazing claymation animator and sculptor and I'm actually doing an upcoming episode with him. But he also runs an online store of stop motion materials that he personally builds and also uses in his work. And he's been running this store and shipping out armatures and rigs and everything else you could need to animators all over the world for many years. And he offered to give anyone listening to this episode 10% off whenever they buy any of his bendy armatures, bendy rigs, and stop motion pro software, which are perfect for any beginner or professional animator. So if you've been looking for a really good quality armature to build your puppet with or do some experimental shots or whatnot, or you need some extra rigs for your project, just go over to his website, animateclay.com click on the store and when you check out in the final step use coupon code AIP as an animation industry podcast and you will get an instant 10% off your purchase plus you are also supporting this podcast by doing so so that's animateclay.com code AIP and 10% off any of the bendy armatures or rigs and stop-motion pro software and I'll include all this information in the description of this podcast so that's that now on to today's episode so the animator I mentioned before is Javen Ivey, and he started his path in a stop motion at Pratt Institute's animation program, which he graduated from in 2009. And afterwards, he moved back to Portland to begin working in stop motion. And he has a ton of credits to his name, including work with Bent Image Labs, the famous Pez films, Starburns, Shadow Machine, House Special, and Open the Portal Studio. And he has worked on commercials, music videos, and a whole bunch of short films. Plus he's pretty well known in the stop motion community for his student work where he experimented with a whole bunch of different techniques. And if you end up watching his student films, you'll instantly recognize that his style has been mimicked in many other stop motion projects. But not only is he an animator, he is also a fabricator, engineer, designer, and animation supervisor. And like I said before, today he is sharing absolutely everything you need to know about how to set up a small stop-motion studio, basically in your bedroom, on a budget, all by yourself. So, Javen, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. What's going on with you? Yeah, pleasure to be
1: here. Um, Yeah, just glad to hang out and uh, share some info and get some stuff out there.
0: Yeah, I'm really I'm really pumped about this episode because uh, way back when I was in high school, I just was filming with my grandpa's old camcorder and like some like dollar store plasticine and having a lot of fun. And I didn't really know anything about lighting or software or anything or where to take it from there. So I do really want to talk about all that stuff. But first, I want to know a little bit more about your journey, because whenever I talk to somebody in stop motion, their journey is very random. It's not like they went specifically to school, got an entry level job like a classic like 2D animator did. Um, So how how hard was it for you to get into stop motion um, and and what kept you in it all this time?
1: Yeah, um, I think I had the same expectation. I did go to school for it, and that was kind of a result of, you know, I, I went to school late. I went in and out of community college after high school and didn't really know what I wanted to do. And uh, then I went through a television program and took some art classes and wanted to kind of mix all that up. And I really enjoyed uh, what animation kind of had in store for the moving image for me. So uh, I ended up at uh, Pratt Institute in Brooklyn in their animation program and figured out, you know, a a lot more, a lot more of the nuances and information I wanted out of uh, uh, what animation could do. Uh, I got involved in, like, the the community, the animation community in New York was incredible and, uh, and really helpful in getting started and got to know some people. And then uh, I graduated 08 and kind of stick around, kind of tried to stick around New York for a while. Um, you know, it was a rough year that year, I would say. Um, and then, uh, you know, Portland was home, so I ended up, uh, I, I just took a break and came back home, and I just stayed here. Um, I really love Portland. I love uh, the weather, the outdoors. I do love the rain, and, and except when we get sick of it. And uh, but uh, like gradually, just got involved in stop motion. I won't say, I won't say it was easy. I won't say it was you know prohibitively difficult. Um, but uh, when I got back to Portland, I. I had a couple connections at Bent Image Lab, partially from um, people I knew in New York that had worked with them before, and uh, and I did like an internship in like 07 during the summer at Bent uh, as well. So that I was I just had a con I just had I, I was on their list that I could you know call them and be like hey I'm available is there anything I can help with um, and they're like yeah sure we'll give you a call when we have something. Um, and you know those were kind of few. It can be few and far between. Like when you're getting started out, like I definitely have like worked in the Irish pub and I've worked in the shoe factory and I've worked in you know other stuff to get by. But um, you know when when there was something that stop motion had for me, then you know I I I dropped everything and went to go play in their world for a few weeks and that. Uh, That was often what could could get me involved and and get a leg up and get a start. So
0: you're so but like why stop motion particularly? Because in Portland, you're surrounded by a lot of 2D studios um, where I would assume there would be a lot more more work in in those areas. So what kept you in stop motion specifically?
1: Well, um, I can't I can't draw. Uh, <laughs> so, like from a from a two dimensional standpoint, it's not something I, I was terribly interested in. I can I can get by with drawing, but I'm really terrible at, like staying on model and uh, you know making sure those in betweens are right. And I prefer working like in the physical world and 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 moving things around. And um, I I would say I'm a very spatially oriented person. Um, yeah. I I like how things fit together and how things interrelate to each other in, in a three-dimensional space. So really, that is what kept me in stop-motion world. I, I love it in stop-motion world. I love moving things around. I love, like, like lights and cameras and all of that stuff. Whereas, like, maybe in, in two-dimensional land or compositing, I did some compositing for a while, it wasn't as satisfying to, like, tactile sensibilities. So... so- uh,
0: um, when you got your first gig in stop motion, how much uh, of a portfolio did you have before that point in time? I had basically a, my reel from uh, college. I had done
1: uh, a short that got a little bit of attention uh, called "My Paper Mind," and uh, and that was all done with like cut stencils and um, had a fun. Um, uh, a really nice effect. It was like it was like um, um, a dimensional version of video feedback where like it was like one frame and then that frame would move backwards in space and the next frame would come up. And so you ended up with this fun tracer effect uh, in uh, dimensional space. And I had a lot of fun exploring that. and uh, a lot of people liked it. so it kind of put me on uh radar um, for like, uh, working with, like, David Daniels, like, he got a look at it and liked it, because, I mean, partially, it was partially inspired by the work David Daniels has done uh, in Stratocut with, um, if you've seen that, it's, like, um, going through a, for lack of a better term, a log of clay that's been built in such a way that you cut away layers of it to reveal another frame, and, uh, and it's just a fascinating way to uh, to think. Um, yeah. It's very fun to try to decipher it. So uh, I'd look up any cut by David Daniels, um, and I, I don't know, I find all those things really ex- inspiring. Um, yeah, yeah uh, so that kind of that got me, got a- attention enough there. Um, and um, Andy London, an instructor I had at Pratt, also um, suggested to them that they maybe have a look at me. And uh, I did an internship there in 07. worked with Rob Shaw. Um, on uh, a music video for They Might Be Giants called I'm Impressed. And uh, yeah, I got to cut out a lot of paper stuff. I was working with a lot of paper stuff at the time. So it was just like a perfect fit. And I got to sort of like show off and, and make enough of, a, enough of an impression that, that uh, I could come back later. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, from when you were seven years old? <laughs> oh no, um, in 2007. Oh, when that, that, that okay. internship was one yeah it was in 2007 okay. um oh in 07 that's what i think i said um but uh yeah uh and then even even getting a start at bent it was like you know just being a puppet wrangler and set you know dr- helping set dressing for like a commercial or something you know it, it was all starting I I like to say I grew up in the art department when I talk about my career in the sense that I got my start making things and moving things and building things and, uh, um, painting things and shaping things and making them ready for camera and getting them out to the stages and, uh, and, uh, you know, approaching everything from like a, like a physical standpoint. And, uh, I wanted to do that. I wanted to do everything involved in stop motion because eventually I wanted to direct uh, or maybe so I thought. I mean, that's still maybe something I want to do, but I think I like uh, helping people achieve what they want to see, I think, is a more fascinating process to me.
0: Yeah. So you've worked at a lot of different studios and a lot of different projects over the years, specifically in stop motion. What is what has been like the thing that's been really helpful in you getting to work on those opportunities? Like, do you advertise your services? Do you have like really good connections? Do you just always try to make the best like work? What has been the number one thing that's maybe taken you through your career?
1: Uh, I think at this point, it's it's just having been really like adaptable and um i like solving problems uh i try sometimes it's hard but i try not to look at problems as like problems and more as puzzles um because you end up with a lot of projects that you come on and it's like who agreed to this (laughs) why are we doing this this is crazy and um and then you take a step back and go okay great here's how we can do it. And and coming up with ways of accomplishing these things is kind of a thrill to me. I've kind of got a reputation as someone who can solve problems. Um, I I don't know. I, I love thinking about this stuff and wrapping my head around some of the puzzles that are presented by these different weird stop-motion animation projects. Uh, I love to see people thinking about stop-motion differently. I love to help them think differently about stop-motion. Um, and I think the thing that helped me has helped me the most is just being pretty versatile and more of a generalist. It's um, it's not that I am a particularly good character animator. I can do it, um, but it's more that I have a good grasp of the entire process. I think that's why yeah. people have me back is that um, I'm very useful throughout uh, the process. So So there's that. I think another thing is just like... Um, I would say to anybody, just be honestly curious about everything and that's gonna get you farther in that, like, it's something you want to be doing and make sure that it still tickles your brain when you walk into the studio yeah. because,, um, that is, you know, just like a healthy enthusiasm and be, you know, generally, open to what's going on in the studio and how we're going to solve it and how we're going to change it and make it interesting and be excited about it. I think that's the kind of thing that's going to have people bring you back as an asset, you know, is that you have a genuine enthusiasm for it and a genuine curiosity as to how it works and how we can make it better and how we can make it more interesting and more fun and everybody can have a good time doing it.
0: Yeah. I, and if you haven't checked out Javen's work, I encourage you to because he's worked on such an array of like different, even types of stop motion that I wouldn't think of. Like you, you built like an entire room of like ocean. Uh, I don't even know how to describe it. Like an entire room that's an ocean with thousands of little pegs that move up and down to to like make the water ripple all in, in sequence. And that's like, like, I don't even know where to start or find somebody. So I think it's an amazing and it speaks to your curiosity of always trying to figure out what, uh, how to do something, what's needed in the whole process that that's really helped you. So maybe from uh, the opposite perspective, what's been the toughest thing for you over your career? That's pretty much spanned about a decade now.
1: Um, I think the toughest thing, uh, one of the toughest things that I deal with personally, and this just comes from, like you walk onto a project and it is like something new and unusual and you don't know how to solve it. Like I, I, you get that imposter syndrome thing and you're like, what am I, what am I doing here? Like, how did I even get involved in this? I'm way over my head, right? Like what am I going to do here? Um, And I have learned and I still continue to learn to not listen to that and to back my own self up in the sense that i've done this and this and this and this and all of these experiences um, are things that i bring to the table that are going to help me solve this problem in front of us like nobody has the solution like the ocean for example when we looked at it you know the director mark smith is like i need an ocean how are we going to do this uh and i'm like I don't know, <laughs> you know, like you, you don't start from a place of knowing you never start from a place of knowing. It's always over the course of the work and over the course of the job that you make these discoveries and solve these problems. So I think that's one thing that is like a blessing and a curse about working in stop motion is so many times. I mean, w- water is a great example. Like we're always doing it differently. Nobody ever wants the same thing. We want water in this context, you know, or the water does this, or it does this, or it does this, and it's in this style. And we've always got to change and adjust how that's done. And there's been several ways of doing it in the past, and maybe "Ah, that's not going to work this time. So we're going to try something different. Um, So I'd say, you know, just having to stay for me, taking a step back, and reminding myself that I do have a place here, especially in it's always a different studio every time everywhere you go everywhere i go i meet a whole bunch of new and amazing people and it's like it's just humbling how many incredible people you get to meet and and um you know you have to remind yourself that you get to be a part of it and you are welcome here and you are uh needed here i think that's that's one of the things that i would say um Uh, Another thing, too, like over the years that I've gotten way better at is especially as an animator um, where you put all of this, you know, you go behind the curtain and everybody leaves you alone and you spend all of this time on a shot and you work on the shot and um, you put all these little nuances in it and you're you're you know, you you struggle through it and you rush through it or or you get good at whatever it is you're doing and it's like this is great okay i really like this shot right and you present that and the director's like "Eh, and what's what's going on ah i don't know i think we got to do this one again and (laughs) it's in those moments that i i've learned you know I, i the first thing i learned was that i need um I need to take a minute. I need to separate myself physically and and get away for like 20 minutes before I can come back and be like, OK, let's talk about how I can do this again. Because the first thing you have to get over in that moment, the director is ready to like talk about how to do it differently. And like, yeah, let's change this and do this at, when we do it again. And I'm still in a state where I'm like. But, but I, you, know, you want to defend it, you want to, you just cared about it for, you know, three to seven hours and, and you really care about what you've done and instantly it's all gone, right? You have to do it again. So I think being able to like sort of separate, take a breath, uh, detach from it um and having had to do things over again it's I I know it's always better the second time it always turns out better the second time um even if not to my standard than to the standard of the person who's asking it of me um and just being able to kind of let go and not be defensive Uh, about something you've done and understand that we're all in this to be a part of this process and to achieve um, a vision that may not be your own you know it's got to fit within the context everybody is working to fit within the context of a greater whole Um, and being able to sort of let go of maybe some of your hard work and just know that you can do it again you can do you know all, all of these things that we're working on in stop motion, these are all coming from the people that are here and you can do it and we can do it. I can do it over and over and over again and it's going to be fine. You know, yeah. I'm still getting paid to be here. So, yes, I will do this again. And uh, being able to kind of let go and and take criticism that you may you may not even agree with, but it isn't your call um, is is a difficult thing to learn to adjust to.
0: Yeah well I'm, I'm happy you brought that up because that's something that I struggle with and I know a lot of other people struggle with too because uh, when you're creating any type of art it comes from such a personal place for myself first that if somebody else watches it and doesn't have uh, an amazing reaction or they're just like eh, or they're like oh well, what about this thing I immediately feel like it's like heart, like they just stabbed me in the heart and they're like twisting with every word. Um, and it's so hard and, and it's so easy to get defensive. And like, but at the end of the day, when you're creating something and putting it out there, it's it's not for you anymore. It's for somebody else to experience. So I I actually was working on a shot the other day and thought about your words where you said, you told me this before, where it's always better the second time around. And I, I finished a shot for a short film I'm working on. I went home and I watched it and it, I, felt kind of underwhelmed but my immediate reaction was like okay uh, move on it's fine like get over this let's work on the next shot but um, I convinced myself to go back and redo it and it was it was like 10 times better because I'd already figured out the process of what I was doing I already figured out how, how to make it look better etc so um, I think that's a great skill to have is and it's something kind of you have to develop over time is to take that criticism and and kind of kill your darlings as they say in in the writing world but um yeah so uh I guess what is the feeling that it so you've gone through a lot of criticism and have to redo stuff but like what is that feeling that keeps you coming back for more you know like what that you've been able to make this out of a career and you still are really passionate about it and you do so many creative things what's that feeling you get when you are happy with something um
1: uh Gosh, you know, it's funny, I struggle to answer this sometimes, and like on some jobs too, like where you get, I find that like around the middle of of a job, that, you know, after we've gotten started, and when we're kind of in the thick of it, and just like repeatedly solving things, and before we get to the relief of the end of it, um, I start asking myself, like, why are we doing this? Like, why am I even doing this? What is going on? Um, How is this rewarding? I never want to do this again. I'm out after this one. Um, And I think everybody at some point gets those feelings. Um, Sometimes it's, it's just seeing a shot. Sometimes it's uh, seeing a shot in context in the edit. And uh, sometimes it's the, you know, it's the people or the interactions you have that's just like stupid stuff, like just stupid goofing around stuff between shots, and remembering how lucky we are to be just involved in a job where we're literally playing with toys all day. Um, and uh, I, you know, I, I I think about and I kind of dream about like uh, finding something else that I would be good at doing. But I really enjoy wrapping my brain around all of the interesting things that stop motion has to offer. Like, I get to use all the parts of my brain. I get to, like, I mean, between, you know, composition and just, like, spatial puzzle solving and, like, you get to break down time and gravity into, like, very tiny increments and just get so hyper-focused on these details that just we all take for granted in our everyday lives um like just objects like objects will just have history you know they have rust or they have scratches or whatever there's there is there's a physical record on everything you know like things go through things and you get to really dive in and analyze what those things are and you get to adjust what that record is like stop motion is a record of of a physical object as it moves through space or whatever you do with it to create a new record of what it's done to create a new idea of something having its own life and having its own story um so when i get you know kind of upset at things i just remember that These are the things I really nerd out on, like from a philosophical standpoint, from an emotional standpoint, from a like how I relate to the universe sort of standpoint is um, that it's very grounding in a weird way. It makes me feel a part of something and um, I feel useful and uh, I feel involved and um, yeah, and I get to meet amazing people amazing people that do it as well so um yeah I think anytime it gets hard I just remember all these really incredible things and I just I don't know how I could give them up you know
0: like I don't know (laughs) how about that um so what what is is something you're working on right now or what's exciting you going forward um right now I've got some free time
1: so I've been kind of cleaning up my absolute just kind of disaster of a general workspace where I keep some things. That's a small portion of it. There's, like, a room in the back that's absolutely loaded. I'm a terrible hoarder of, like, raw materials and and uh, and objects and things. Like, I, you know, just reaching over, I have, like, random, this is a pinball from something, or, like, there's my rock collection or things to fidget with. Here's a cup full of Ninja Turtles toys from a Ninja Turtles spot. Like, I just... <laughs> it's a disaster but there's always something to make something out of and when i need something i tend to have it or if i don't have it i can make it um and uh yeah i think right now i just kind of get time to play i just got to get really involved with um my hobby community with some video game stuff that's everybody has to get together so i got to help and be kind of community organizer for that and um yeah, I spend my downtime eh, playing video games, but also having a, um, a good time exploring concepts and just moving things around on a table. So, so. like,
0: um, I guess looking forward, what is your what is your ultimate dream of a project you'd want to work on? Oh, man. Um... Like no restrictions and money or time or and people involved or whatever like what you, know, you mentioned before that you you were thinking of directing uh, and you've worked on so many different things over yeah. the years. what what is what's something that you're really excited about uh working on
1: i think absolutely i've never i've never seen this um yet but what i keep kind of like putting out and suggesting to people who maybe might have some influence over who can make that decision is that i would love to see almost like not not a vaudeville show, but a uh, a, a nice variety um, program on. I don't know if it's something that Netflix does or who, you know any of these publishers does. But I want to see short films. I want to see people doing things that are out of the ordinary. I want to see stop motion short films, like kind of collected and presented. You know, like here's a block of. I love I love film festivals. I love seeing like entire blocks of short animations, and I would love to see that as like a program choice or something I could just go watch. I think it gets harder and harder to collect and view um, good quality content, especially on the internet. There's so much and there's so much good stuff and there's so, and it's so hard to find it, I think. And, you know, you can be plugged in and, and looking at things, but I think being able to find really good stuff, Uh, I think that's that's somebody there's a there's a vacuum there if somebody can find and put together the really good stuff and make it in in a presentation I'd love to see that. Um, I'd love to work on things that get involved in that that end up in that Um, stop motion experiments anybody doing something new and unusual they want to try in stop motion. um, I love seeing that I love helping out with that, like. yeah. yeah, maybe one day I can just be a consultant and and tell people in low they shouldn't do that.
0: <laughs> um, did you end up seeing the Love, Death, and Robots um, short? I did. Um, like I you're thinking like something like that for stop motion, maybe?
1: Yeah, I think that would be a great start. I I think that um, I I wish that that I don't feel like it got the reception I expected it to get, and I mean even from myself, like I think. Um, it was a there was a bit more shock value sort of appeal in it than i'm like comfortable with and maybe that's that's probably just me getting old but um i i wanted a little more i think i just want more wholesome stuff these days i think i just <laughs> i think i'm just getting uh older and i'm and i'm tired of a lot of uh um blood gore and 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 then violence um towards people and i want some more uh wholesome wondrous curious um experimental interesting content and uh so anybody out there doing any of that uh um
0: i'd love to get involved <laughs> um, i feel you um so we had, a, we had an interesting chat kind of um, before this podcast and I want to, before we get into like setting up the, the basics of your home studio and producing like commercial level work, uh, maybe this is a good time to chat about stop motion as a medium itself because uh, it's, well, it's like interesting for me that stop motion is, is making a wave of a comeback now because when I was in high school, there was like no stop motion. It really discouraged me because CG was becoming a huge thing and all the investment and, and like economy was going there. The industry is basically like 2D CG and a little bit of stop motion now. So um, what why do you think stop motion is still thriving, given that you've been able to work on so many cool projects over the years? Like what what is the main reason that people are still investing and in, interested in stop motion when we can mimic reality with CG sure. and also stop motion with CG like the Lego movie, for instance? Sure. Um, and 2D is so cheap, right? Yeah, um, I I I think there,
1: I think it comes down to like that that thing you can't place. It's hard to like put your finger on it, and I and I'm gonna try to over generally simplify and summarize it. Is that um, there's something inherently entertaining to your brain to see something move in a way that you don't expect right like just to watch a coffee cup walk across a table um i mean it's it's different it's something that you have to reassess how you think about a coffee cup how you think about gravity how you think about reality in general and um anything that can do that to your brain is going to be entertaining. I think anything that can kind of shake up or poke or bend uh, your perception of reality is going to um, be engaging by the very nature of it. Like your brain is going to engage with the subject at hand. Um, And I think that's where, stop motion really shines in that it takes like real things and you on some human level understand that it's a real object. Um, I think that is where stop motion shines. And and I don't think that necessarily always translates to um, really high end stop motion. I think there's kind of a, uh, I'm not going to say an uncanny valley, but a happier valley where it's not smooth or beautiful enough to be mistaken for a different medium we're not trying to um we don't need to crawl out of that valley to be to exceed what stop motion is i think part of what makes stop motion industry is uh stop motion part of what makes stop motion interesting is understanding that it is stop motion is understanding that there is some sort of play uh with time and with space and uh, yeah, you can, you can fake a lot of that in CG. I think, I think things that can be faked convincingly in CG should be partially because it affords a lot of um, ease of adjustment. And there's a lot of things that maybe even might be more expensive to do in CG, but it affords you the capacity to make changes. Um, there's plenty of reasons to do it in CG and not use stop motion at all where stop motion really shines is where it calls attention to itself and the audience is reminded and kind of rides that line between um, they're watching a story and they're watching a process, you know, they're watching and they're, they're viewing art, but they're also viewing, um, you know, what I want to say fabrication. Like it's that, old art debate of idea versus process um and sort of riding the line between those two I think is where stop motion really shines and I think it's what makes it the most interesting and I think that's why uh we keep going back to it on top of nostalgia I think is another big driver like agencies and clients are always wanting say we want it to look like rudolph you know we want that christmas stuff we want um a nice wintry thing to sell our phones or whatever. Um, because it plays on nostalgia. It plays on a lot of stuff that used to be, it used to be stop motion was the only way to do special effects, you know, like in terms of big monsters and whatever, up until Jurassic park, we were doing everything in stop motion to create monsters. So there's nostalgia there. And that's another appeal. That's another big appeal. Um, But really, I think it comes down to it being an engaging and entertaining medium that can be played with. And I think uh, the more that we can do that, the better off we are in moving forward.
0: Yeah, and I I think, at least for myself, I started playing with stop motion because it was so fun to take something that was real and see it come alive versus like, I don't know, if I want to do like fire special effects, I'll just go to CG because I can just make that look real. Um, so I think it's I think it's interesting that you've kind of I haven't really seen it defined in like a thesis way but you've kind of defined it as like stop motion is this middle ground between um, like the you have CG which is can be like mimics reality and is like super smooth and everything and then you have stop motion where you still are reminded that this is real and fabricated and part of a process um, but once you get to a point where the the stop motion looks CG then, it's almost like why not just use CG then, right?
1: Again, that, that that's my personal opinion, and and I think um, there's absolutely something to pushing an art form to its absolute limit in terms of what's possible. Like, yeah. and and if that's your reason for using stop motion, more power to you. Please do it. Somebody's got to do it. Somebody yeah. has to like raise that bar of of quality um, and possibility uh, because that allows everybody else playing down here where i guess where i am is where i want to see is um it it enables us more tools to achieve simpler goals you know uh, which may have been out of reach i mean the incredible thing now is uh that we have enough stop motion tools to do all these things that maybe weren't accessible to me 10 years ago you know i have tools now that i i i would have lost my mind over when i was in college you know like we we were doing things on a lunchbox on a, on a lunchbox to VHS, which even that was an incredible advancement on literally taking frames on a film camera on a Bolex or something on a 16 millimeter camera. Um, so everything driving that art form, great, welcome, like please do more. That's that's incredible. Um, I think that just makes it all the more accessible for these kids today to uh use these tools to create fun things and make stories and and make objects move or to experiment in how things move in, in space i don't know i, I yeah what was so the question in that, in that, <laughs>
0: <laughs> well it, it just in that light i guess what is what is something that no other medium has it been able to touch that stop motion can still touch um that makes sense only in stop motion
1: I, I think just playing with time and space uh, from the physical world, I, like again, like stop motion is it, stop motion is the heart of filmmaking, right? Like the the inception of filmmaking is inherently related to stop motion. You have a recording of space and time. You're you've taken a series of images. And then line them all up to create the illusion of movement, to replay or to, you know, see this record of time. Um, and it will always be a, a a core aspect of filmmaking. Like, it will always be at the heart of it, at the inception of it, at the beginning of it. It's just a series of images strung together from different points in time to create its own timeline to create its own illusion of movement and i don't think i don't think anything we can do can like take that away i i even as fast as we can get our frame rates to go um it still comes down to a record and and slicing time up into little bitty parts and putting it all back together again to present it
0: can you imagine a stop motion film like 60 frames per second? <laughs> I, I don't want to. I prefer not to. Um. Uh, so, so, you mentioned like pushing the medium and when it's right to use stop motion. Can you think of a specific example just to give me an idea of uh, a film, or short film, or project, or something that you think does a really good job of utilizing stop motion as as a as the medium? Um, gosh, I
1: was uh, I was kind of rolling over my head. I feel like. Yes, there's a bajillion examples, and I'm always really terrible at coming up with one on the spot. But um, things like – actually, no, I take it back. I wrote something down. Um, Johan, I think it's Ritma, uh, R-I-J-P-M-A. Um, that's some, this is somebody who plays a lot with the with concepts of, of time and space and stitching them back together. There was a short uh, he did uh, probably about 10 years ago called, uh, tiles, but, uh, T-E-G-E-L-S. I think it's, I'm not sure what language that is. Um, but it's just pictures of, um, like concrete tiles on the ground and things that are a repeated shape, but the content of each shape is different. So, Creating movement and creating a different record of motion and time within the confines of what you can find on the street um, is a fascinating concept to me. Anybody breaking things out into the real world, there's great stuff that uh, is maybe like a series of uh, paintings or art on walls all over town. So one frame will be over here, down here on the sidewalk, and another frame is up here on a wall and you just take a picture of all of those things and you put it together and again you've created a separate record of time and space that now runs together to create this movement to create this new story um um, anything max winston is doing he does a great job of just like putting things together in a different way that we don't think about and create something new uh, with space and light and objects and time Um, johnny kelly i love his work um has great concepts in stop motion and you know is in no way limited by stop motion and i think that's an important thing too while stop motion is the tool to help stories it doesn't necessarily have to be the ends of we're, we're doing it because we're doing it in stop motion i think stop motion is a tool to use to tell stories so as long as you have a good idea or story to tell um, then and stop motion is a good medium to do it in, by all means. Like I think Pess is a great example of that, and he, I you know he'll tell you the same thing in the sense that he maybe didn't even set out to be an animator, but stop motion was a way for him to convey some ideas that he had. So that stop motion made it possible. So that was the medium that gets chosen for some of his ideas that he has. You know. Um,
0: it's, I like what like you just said about story. kind of starting with the story and uh, finding the right medium that will tell that story that, that makes a lot of sense um, so well, and I'm also gonna I, I'm gonna include links to all these uh, incredible people you listed in the description of this podcast. If you're listening, I'll check out that. But um, so let's uh, maybe switch it up a little bit and talk more about uh, if you're beginning in stop motion or want to begin in stop motion, or you've got a story to tell and you've realized that stop motion is is kind of the way to go. Um, you know, like I said, I discovered stop motion from like playing with plasticine and Lego and like moving it frame by frame on my dresser and I didn't know anything about lighting. And so like when I played back the first thing that I created, like the entire video is flickering like dark to light because of the clouds going by outside. Um, So uh, I guess let's talk about what exactly kind of equipment and software and like knowledge and tools you need to at like a minimum to sit up set up like a, a bedroom stop motion studio if you're a beginner, but still create studio level professional looking work. So maybe um maybe we could talk about that. What's like the first thing somebody should be aware of, I guess, from your perspective?
1: Yeah. Um I, I think the best place to start is to understand that you you're in control and in the sense that you're in, you're in control of the lighting, and you're in control of the framing, and you're in control of the camera, and um, all of those things are difficult to control. Um, your example of like if you're anywhere near a window, uh, your lighting is going to change over time just by the nature of the sun, <laughs> you know, and by the nature of things happening. In a realm that's outside of your control so if the first thing you need to do is like i've got some black curtains that maybe i use in a pinch or i'll throw up some duvetine, uh which is like a thick black curtain to c- shut out that light so that the only light hitting my whatever i'm working with is under my like sphere of influence um same thing with the camera where possible don't let it do anything automatically. Like it might auto-focus on you, like a webcam is going to do things to try to like auto-focus uh, on something. Um, so you're not going to be in control of that. You have to take the control away from the webcam. There might be there's generally uh, software for any webcam you have um, supplied by the company that you can go in and uncheck the box and you can do it yourself. Um, so. Being in control of the light, being in control of the camera, uh, and being in control of where the images are going, and that usually leads to like stop motion software and um, and you know all all the options therein. So just recognizing where the variable are variables are is your first step, and understanding what you're not in control of, and then getting that to a place where it's not going to change on you um that's that's like your first step stop motion has a really cool thing where you don't have to worry about audio during so it can be a loud environment i can have trains going by i can have a refrigerator buzzing it doesn't matter i don't care about room tone i don't have to worry about audio i'm terrible with audio um any sound designers want want to work with me because i <laughs> i'm i'm a disaster with audio in general i don't think in audio terms, um, I think in like how it's moving. So I think, yeah, start from a place where you can get your environment that you're working in under control. this might be like picking the back room that has no windows. This might be just like, yeah, just setting aside a space in your room that is going to be not touched for much longer than you think. You're going to need. Uh, it could be like, yeah, I can I can do this for 20 minutes, and then you know, as long as nobody comes in, then it'll be fine. Um, no, <laughs> it's gonna take longer. It always takes longer than you think. Um, so yeah,
0: like start with a space you can control. Um, yeah, I, I like that advice because and and like on top of that, for me, I've learned to just tie down everything. Like I might accidentally bump the camera or a light. Or even the desk, and it moves an inch out of the way, but then when you watch your video, there's a big jerk right in the middle of it, and then everything changes, and it just trips up your experience. So, yeah, I think it, it makes sense to, to have an environment that you can control. And, um, yeah, so let's, let's, let's go through everything, like, one by one. So let's talk about what kind of camera you need, because you mentioned webcam, um, so if I'm just starting out, like, what can I use? Can I use my phone? Should I buy a DSLR? What about my webcam? Like, what is the, what's the, what's gonna give me the best result? If you're
1: just starting out, you've never done this before, like, use anything you get your hands on. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of, like, you know, I keep a lot of crap around because I like to work with whatever I have at hand, and so the more crap I have around, the more I have to work with, right? So. Uh, I, I even I I have an old iPhone that I can use to do some animation tests. I want to play with like macro stuff. So so there's like those little magnetic, those little magnetic lenses that you can stick on an iPhone or whatever. Like I can screw around with some macro stuff and maybe try things really tiny. Um, I like tiny things. I think Bruce Bickford, um, who we lost this last year, had the right idea. He had a whole thing on. You know, I don't have the money for a lot of space and you know that sort of thing. But what I do have is a little space. So if I work small, then I don't need a big space, right? Like I don't need to uh, have all that access to all that big thing. So work with what you have. Work with what you have access to. Even if it is just a webcam, um, you can still make things that get the idea across. You can still tell your story if that's what your aim is with um what you have at hand um that said there's all you can always go up from there you know like don't wait to do your idea until you have all the equipment and all the big things and all the you know exactly the right stuff because you'll never get it done i'm very guilty of this
0: um of the plus same you might thing. not even know if you like doing it right like you might oh, buy. yeah a- and then realize you hate the process.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think the important part of your story, even in and my story and everybody's story is that it's something you're drawn to. And if you find you start playing with this stuff and you don't like playing with this stuff, don't do it. Like you I think play is probably the most important aspect of getting started with this stuff. If you don't have a, a curiosity and you're not entertained by it and, you don't want to struggle through those parts that are really frustrating because you you're just not into it the end result if you don't get joy out of it don't do it you know i think that's that's one of the biggest things about stop motion and why people get stuck into it is because we honestly enjoy the process of it it's a fun thing to to go from just you know anything I just keep gra- I just keep grabbing things just to like go for from an object and make it like wobble across a desk and you play it back and then it's its own object wobbling across a desk. That's cool. And if you don't get joy out of that, then that's okay. You found out that maybe that's not your thing. but um don't make all the huge crazy investments to find out that it's not your thing. Start with um, what you have at hand. and generally it tends to be like a webcam or, uh, a spare old phone that you can plug in. Um, even Dragon frame uh, recognizes like iPhones and has an iPhone tether that's really cool uh, these days. Um, which I guess brings me to kind of like software. If you go kind of down the chain, I need a camera. I might need some lights. I need a space. Um, and the next step is you need a way to put images together right a way to stitch these things stitch all these moments together so that you have a moving in, moving image um i dragon frame is amazing um and you can get it i think i haven't looked in a while because i bought my license so long ago and it like lasts forever and you rarely have to upgrade um but compared to something like the Adobe Creative Suite even, like with Photoshop and Illustrator, all those things, Dragon Frame is very cheap at like $300. Um, it sounds like a lot of money, but if this is something you're into, you're going to have it and use it forever. Um, and it's great. It, it lets you do anything you want to do, and it allows you to expand into anything you don't know you, you want to do yet. Um, Dragonframe is definitely the top notch in my book. Uh, that said, going back to using what you have, um, I can't remember what it's, I think it's just called Stop Motion, and it's, I know it works really well with iOS and Apple systems, and it's really simple, really direct and easy to use, um, and it's super cheap. It's, like, free, and then you can do, like, a couple add-ons if you want to, like add sound or different onion skins or, or different ways of doing things.
0: Um, um so. you know, so like, uh, just to kind of keep on that free software, I know somebody specifically asked about this too. And I started stop motion when I was in high school and had zero money, like just zero money. Is there any other free software, that you know of or like other free uh, editing tools. Like I used like iMovie sometimes when I was doing stop motion in the beginning and it was so hard because iMovie doesn't really recognize frames. So you right. have to like clip down uh, a video clip to like the minimal point as possible and put them all together, which takes a lot of work, but um, it still has the same effect. So do you know of any other, other free softwares perhaps for a computer or whatnot?
1: um gosh not at the top of my head just because it's been so long there used to be That's ones fair. called like like way back when like i used like it was i think it was called iStop stop motion they, it wasn't a, an apple product but they were jumping on the i whatever naming conventions that apple was using at the time just to kind of blend <laughs> but it was called iStop motion and that got me through for a while um I think there's one out there called stop motion pro but i've never used it and i don't know how m- i think it's very cheap um and i think it might be ready to go um i think if you just do some digging i think you'll be able to find something uh there used to be really a rudimentary one called frame thief i have no idea where that one is now because again that was like 10 years or more ago um, i think you're going to be able to find something i think if you just start digging for a free stop motion software I think you'll find something. Um, if you do find you enjoy stuff, like find a way to get access to, or maybe you can borrow a license from a friend, or if you're involved in the stop motion community at large, somebody generally has a license for Dragon Frame that you can like, use for a while while they're not using it. Um, because it's worth looking into, because it just makes things... It, it has a good interface that it's very robust. You can do all of the things that you think you're going to need to do with it. I know I just made a speech about work with what you got, but um, it's, it's, it's a good one to, to have access to if you have.
0: Well, no, I think that's a good point too, because there's a huge value in finding a community of people who are into the same thing as you. For me, that was um, stopmotionanimation.com. But And where do you where do you go for uh, connecting in, uh, with other stop motion animators? I mean, fortunately, I'm involved well enough that,
1: like, I, I will call someone I know. Um, and, you know, that goes to assistant camera people or, you know, people that do lighting or, or people that build puppets or people that do armatures or um, or riggers or puppet fabrication, uh, f- puppet fabricators or sculptors or. Um, so, I have a pretty good network that I've built up over the years of like people I know I can just ask questions of when I'm really in a pinch. But oh my gosh, there is such a wealth of information out there just on the internet. There's a guy, a, a guy on YouTube that I really enjoy watching, Edu Puertas, and I believe he's in Spain. And I've just been following his journey of like, getting better at machining armatures and doing stop motion and building his little studio. And, uh, he has a wealth of information. He's been doing like tests of like what, how much to wrap your wires or don't wrap your wires or what wires to use. And there's so much information. I I, I haven't found the time to catalog it all. And, uh, I don't think anybody will. I think, um, I think again, your curiosity is going to drive you and let it, And just learn how to search because it's out there and there's people that do it. And do not absolutely do not be afraid to, you know, email or message me um, or anybody that you find and enjoy their work, because I would say 85, 90 percent of the time, these people are more than willing to give you an answer or to help you find something that, you know, you wouldn't wouldn't even think about. Um, the stop motion community is much smaller than you think. Um, it's a lot of very incredible and humble people and they're all very generous, uh, with, with, uh, their time and techniques and information. Um, so I, I think the trick there is just don't be afraid to ask, find the the people that are doing things you want to try and, uh, ask them how they do it.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, thank you also being for, for being so generous and sharing uh, your knowledge on this podcast. Yeah. Steven's <laughs> one of the people that I reached out to and uh, said, yeah, so 100%. Um, I feel like if you're in stop motion, you love it so much because it's – why why else would you be in stop motion, like moving things? you? Minut- <laughs> millimeters for hours at a time, unless you really loved it. So um, yeah, you also mentioned lighting and I do want to talk a little bit about that because that's been one of the biggest banes of stop motion for me is because sometimes I'm working with such small little characters, they'll have like a huge shadow or like it'll be uneven lighting or I'll have a hot spot. I know somebody asked a specific question about hot spots on flat surfaces, uh, particularly Mm -hmm. in cutout animation. Um, How do you get... Some good consistent lighting so that, like, if you, I don't know, just one example is I have a character and then I have a little background that I made, and the character shadows on the background, so it doesn't look like a background anymore. It looks like a right. cutout that's just behind the character, right? So, right. how do you get some good, uh, ki- like, good coverage lighting that looks professional, but also on a dime too?
1: Sure. Um, I think. Um... Yeah, that's that's a that's a good question. And there's so many there are so many answers. And so many of them come from just like an understanding of how light works. Like, don't be afraid to just just go to the library and get books on photography. They're going to have everything like everything I know about lighting has been, you know, I took some photography classes in like community college and college, and that kind of got me a rough start. Um, But I wasn't very good at it. I'm still not very good at it, but my understanding of it has grown immensely just from working around people who know how it works. Um, Look up angle of incidence, uh, and there's entire, like, tomes of how that works and what that means and how lights work. Um, uh, Something about, there's, I think it's called the inverse square rule, Uh, Something about doubling the distance and quartering the light or half the light. Um, And it's all of these, like, things that are very hardwired into physics. Like, these are things that you're just not getting around, and you have to find how these tools work. Um, I have, like, a couple suggestions for, like, flat plane stuff. Um, Just understanding that if I have a camera, it can see, like, in a wedge, right? Like, let me see. Just a second. All right, so my camera, it, it can see, like, that sort of wedge, right? And if you follow that wedge to, I'm going to say, the bottom of the frame, it can also see, if this is a reflective plane, it can also continue that wedge, like, the wedge would keep going down through the table, but that wedge is going to continue bounce back up, and I'm going to be able to see all that in that area if it's in reflective. So if I have any lights between here and, like, here... Like in that wedge, I'm going to be able to see them in the camera, in the in the reflection, right? Um, it's like playing pool on a pool table. You know that if you bounce it off that wall, it's also going to come down at the same angle to come down this way, you know? Um, you have to think about that when you're looking at optics, when you're looking at lights and how they bounce. Um, smaller lights, the smaller the point um is the harder the shadow will be so like a broader light um let's see if i can turn one on like up here i've got some just like they're just like fluorescent bar lights i think these are actually led they're really light and i think they're pretty cheap too
0: so so if i'm starting out um Uh, why take some work (laughs) <laughs> that's all right i'm not gonna do it if people are listening they won't be able to see it anyways uh oh, but okay, fair enough on youtube um so if i'm just starting out and i'm in my bedroom and i have like one incandescent bulb in the ceiling what is what can i what can i add to that or take a, a take away from that to get some good basic lighting for what i want to do desk lamps I think desk
1: lamps, desk lamps on, on swing arms are so great uh, and very helpful in terms of putting a light where you need it. Um, and uh, go ahead, like light up those the shadows that you see, like just dump a bunch of light in there to chase them out um, or, um, but yeah, angle of incidence equals angle of reflection. That's like just something that sits in the back of my head. And that helps you with those things that you have the camera up and over and you're looking down on like any paper animation or stuff like that. You want your lights as far to the side as you Ah. can. You don't want them directly overhead because then that does like give you, um, you know, weird hot spots that are just kind of bouncing and reflecting off of whatever surface you're looking at because that's bouncing straight back up into the camera. Um, it's like, imagine if you are holding a flashlight next to your head and pointing it at yourself in the mirror, that's what you're going to see, you know, right. that's what the camera wants to see. So the farther off to the side, you can get that, uh, I think the better off you're going to be, um, and the hardest part then is just kind of keeping things even, you know, so you kind of want them, you kind of have to split the difference between, uh, as far out and as far, uh, far in as that's you can fair. get. So, well, better. that
0: makes the the reflection of incidents or whatever it's called. that makes a lot of sense to me. I never actually thought about it like that before. I'm going to have to research that. So um, maybe like two or three desk lamps are, are going to be good for your rudimentary stuff yeah. that you need to do and spread out. You know, actually I just thought of something, something that I started doing recently because uh, the tech um, woman at uh, Sheridan College helped me out with the lighting because I was dealing with hotspots. She just aimed the lights at the ceiling um, which actually ended up reflecting evenly over my set and i had never thought to do that before. Yeah, so bounce, um, bounce. Yeah. The bounce. <laughs> yeah. Getting like that
1: helps you like get, it effectively makes a nice broad light for you. Like right now I, I don't have like a, a desk lamp pointed at my face. I have it pointed at the wall. but If I pointed at my face, it's, yeah. it's a disaster. <laughs> um, but uh, that's another like visual one that doesn't translate but um but yeah like if you want to get a nice broad even light use a bounce card it's just a big white just big piece of poster board from you know wherever you can get it and and point the light at that away for your from your set and then that way you just get nice soft shadows nothing's really hard the smaller the source of light the harder the shadow you know yeah. the sun is very far away and very bright and a very tiny thing in the sky and that's why you end up with very sharp shadows everywhere that the sun casts, right? Um, yeah. Whereas, um, you know, if you bounce a light off the ceiling, then you have a nice, almost like overcast light, right? It's like the clouds are in the way. You get soft shadows on everything,
0: right? Yeah. Cool. So at this point, we've talked about kind of the camera you need, the software setup, um, block out or control your room, block out all light, etc., Um, And some of the lighting, what are what are some other tools that are really helpful when it comes to stop motion before you even get like a character or clay or anything like that? Wire. Wire, yeah. Aluminum wire, just
1: so much wire, just little ways of defying gravity, because as soon as you start animating, you're going to find you want a character to jump or fly or float or something needs to move through the air and it needs to appear unsupported or um it just you just need something to hold it up there even fishing line from above if you don't have a way of painting things out go old school and use fishing line um just you're gonna need a lot of tape and a lot of maybe uh something malleable to hold things up like clay or and you know all of this is leading to what all of these things are called rigging right in uh all, anytime you use something to hold something else up and keep it where you want it to be you've rigged it it is rigged it you have used rigging to hold it there um, and uh, you're gonna need a lot of rigging and rigging ranges from uh, bubble gum to highly machined uh, intricate parts so have you used have you used bubblegum before um I can neither confirm nor deny that, I think, at this moment in time. Uh, I joke about that, but like we, I use a lot of sticky wax, which has a consistency that's a little bit, uh, could some days be like bubble gum. Um, but yeah, I use a lot of sticky wax, um, it, which is kind of like a, almost like a, it's like a bit softer than like beeswax and a little yeah. bit stickier. You, uh, so that um, it kind of adheres to stuff. Another
0: question that I have that I'm dealing with right now is weights. Uh, I'm, I have trouble finding something that's small but really heavy mm-hmm. um, to hold down a weight. Is there something like lead or something that you, you particularly use? I, I would personally stay w- away from anything marked lead. And
1: that's just from a personal thing uh, In involving, um, you know, lead is, lead is toxic. It's not good. You don't want to have it on your hands and then eat a sandwich. Um, it's not good for you we try to not use it. It's very tempting because there's some like lead sheeting that you can put under a piece of cloth that makes it really beautifully malleable. Just don't, just don't. I think your your long-term health is gonna thank you for not using anything labeled uh, lead. Um, but in terms of like, so steel, in terms of weight, steel becomes your your kind of next go-to uh, as being something nice and heavy. like use if you have some weights like literal like you know bench press weights laying around or you know somebody with a weight set uh those are good to really hold down big things um but another thing to maybe look at if you can't um if you can't get like a weight on the back of like an, on, an arm that reaches something or over something um just look at how your how don't want to say this, how you're structurally orienting something. Because if you've got, like, uh, like a foot, this is another visual thing. Like, if you got a foot with an L and the bottom part of the L is under the object that you're supporting, you're not going to have to worry about how much that, that surface weighs. Whereas, like, if you've got a weight over on this side of the set and you've got an arm that has to reach across the set, you need more weight at the back. That's, that's just levers you want to keep that lever um, as as short as possible so if you can actually just change where the fulcrum is you don't need as much weight if that makes sense um, but yeah um, like
0: weight sets. so this is i want to talk about like um, armatures and things like that but I, one question that just popped into my mind so if we're working with rigs, what is like for me, um, I edit out the rig in uh, Adobe Photoshop in each frame, and then I import that into whatever video software I'm using like Premiere or After Effects, whatever. So what is the best way for a beginner who hasn't um, removed the rig from the final production yet? How is, what's the best way for them to do so?
1: I think a a Photoshop program is, uh, and I say that to mean a, prog- a program like Photoshop that you have access to. If you have Photoshop, do it. Um, I, I would start there knowing that you're eventually going to start removing rigs in After Effects um, or removing rigs in a compositing program uh, further down the line. Um, because doing it first, like frame by frame and physically sort of like painting it out and using a clean plate, uh, which is an image of the set without the puppet in it. Um, that's what you're going to use to replace um, any uh, any part where the rig is showing in the frame. Um, you're basically going to cookie cutter out the uh, rig to reveal the set. Um, do it in like something like Photoshop first, because that's going to give you a better idea of how rig removal works. That's going to conceptually ingrain in, in you what you are doing in compositing. Um, when you're then working in compositing, it makes more sense, and you'll be able to um, sort of get your head around solutions when there's rigs all over the place uh, because we no longer have any regard for what it's going to take after we shoot it. <laughs> um, it depends on how mean an animator is going to be to you as a compositor, Um, but like coming from a place where I did compositing and I did have to edit out my own rigs, the hard way, um, has made me a better animator, a kinder animator to the people who have to then composite out, um, like rigs and, uh, things that they have to hide from my process.
0: Does it, does it make it like, should I be painting my rig like green or something like that to make it easier for green screen or masks or anything? Or does that even matter?
1: There 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 are several schools of thought i think it depends on uh one it depends on the compositor it depends on the background if you're using a green screen background yeah green rigs are good um if you're using just a just the set itself as the background and you're using that as your clean plate um depending on your puppet and what your puppet looks like um Will depend on what you want to do to that rig. If it's a light colored puppet, you might want to put black tape around your rig. You know, you might want that to be a nice contrasting line where it meets the puppet. Um, that will get a good result. If it's a shiny surface puppet, um, you have a different issue to worry about. It is a very case by case basis and often will be on set. I won't even have the answer. We'll have to bring down the person from VFX. Uh, or post to look at it and be like, oh, please paint that white. Oh, please paint that black. Please use green here. Actually, you know, what would be really great is purple, you know, or something like that. Often it is very specific to the case and it's specific to a compositor's preference. If you find it easier to paint all your rigs green, do it. If you find it easier to just leave them naked and just hide them and paint them out in post, do it. You know, I think whatever especially these days where compositing technology has gotten much stronger than when I was doing it more regularly,
0: um, I'm always surprised at what compositors asked for. So, uh, sure. Um, Kind of, if I'm just starting out, should I even be worried about rig removal? Like, I know that I can, if I want to put together a portfolio of stop motion, for instance, I can not worry about compositing at all and still just show all the rigs and everything, and that should be fine. Is that right, from your (laughs) members? From my
1: from my perspective, if anybody is looking at your reel to judge you as an animator, they don't care about your rigs. They don't care about seeing your rigs. They don't care how well you've removed a rig. Um, they care about what your animation looks like. They're looking at the character. I, as an animator or animation director or anybody else on the show who's looking at your reel and your footage to judge your animation isn't looking at your rigs. Don't worry about removing them if you're putting together something for a reel. Um Makes
0: sense. Yeah. Um so uh, so now we've we've kind of talked about like all the equipment and setup and and like some tips on that. But maybe from like putting together a portfolio perspective, what is something that somebody should be animating like um you can use clay you can use armatures you can use physical objects like you can have like a book jump up and down if you want to go the i want to make a career out of this from a commercial standpoint what are some of the things that you should start from the beginning to animate yeah
1: um i think uh you know, animators start with the bouncing ball. I'm 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 partial to physics, so if I can see something like loft in the air and come down and bounce or hit the ground with weight, um, uh, that's helpful for me to judge. Um, if I'm looking at someone and judging their character animation, I want to see something walking with personality. It's one thing to just make it walk, and that's its own difficult thing. It's another thing to make it walk with Um, with purpose or with hesitation or um, with a limp or with a struggle like anything that any really anything that tells a story if I look at just a snippet of animation and I feel like there is something more implied if there is a story or a circumstance that's implied like that's that's a big plus if you can relay an idea through your animation. If you can relay a feeling or an emotion through your animation, um, that's what I think is most important. Sometimes it's not about having the perfect arc. Um, that's kind of my preference, but people are also gonna be watching your arcs, as they say. You, There's a whole podcast episode on arcs. Um, look up arcs in animation and, and study how that works because there's a whole deep thing about arcs. Um, um what else yeah i want to see i'm i'm a physics guy i like to see things have weight and uh because we have to fake that in animation we fake we fake gravity we fake weight we fake size so anything you have that is light if you can make it look heavy if something is heavy and you can make it look light um anything that shows something different from what it is um that's that's gonna help you stand out, I think. That's gonna show an understanding of animation.
0: Yeah, and just uh, for clarity, arcs are like um, going from like point A to B, not in a straight line, but in like a flowing, interesting line using like the principles of animation and stuff like that, right? Yeah. Um, Cool. So uh, why don't we chat about like what you're actually animating. So should I go out and buy um, an armature right away to start testing out stuff with that? Should I just start by animating what's around me? Um, Like if I don't know where to begin, what what what's a good place that's going to teach me the basics and give me a good understanding of what stop motion is really like as a process?
1: Yeah. Um, while I, I would say I don't do a lot of clay work. I don't know a lot of people who do a lot of clay work. I think clay is a good place to start. Um, like I've, I've taught, uh, like fourth graders stop motion and I mean, Legos are great. Legos are handy. I'm still using them. I'm, you're just going to see more Lego stuff out of me because I treat them like my clay. I can make different shapes out of them and make them jump and explode and do different things easily, quickly. It's a malleable thing. Um, um I think if you want to do character stuff and you don't want to build your own armature buy an armature um they they are expensive um so that could prohibit doing it make one out of wire first you know like um put it together with something that hardens like a like a propoxy or something please use a respirator when you use it um or like there's some great plastic that is like malleable when it gets to a certain temperature, and then cools off. Um, and uh, But make your own armatures out of just wire and something hard or blocks of wood. Um, just put two legs and stick them into uh, just a chunk of wood and just try two legs and see what two legs gets you. Um, you don't have to animate a whole body to start with. Uh, that's, that's a lot of work. Uh, it's a lot of work to animate an entire character. So start with pieces. Start with little things. Start with segments. Um, try an inchworm just try a piece of wire i think i'm again i'm somebody who just grabs whatever's nearby uh so grab whatever's nearby that's my suggestion
0: yeah um as for the wire armature i was doing it wrong for so long i wasn't twisting my wire so like after three bends it would just break so yeah (laughs) twist your wire
1: well i Um, mean there's different schools of thought on that uh, too. Okay. <laughs> like <laughs> it depends on what you're looking at. I I am not a fan of twisting wire. I i am I am a fan, however, of like, like bundling wire with, uh, and then using thread to wrap it, to hold it together. And that way it kind of like um, slips across itself and doesn't stress it out as much. There's so many ways of doing it again. Yeah. Check out Edu Puertas. He is a good, uh, a good sort of, Uh, He actually has a YouTube video on whether or not to twist wire, and it's very interesting.
0: I I found it fascinating. I haven't seen that one. So if you're listening, don't twist your wire or twist it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, So um, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. Um, I do have a lot of questions that were kind of submitted to me specifically for you in regards to um, the starting out as a beginner or like whatnot. So maybe we can just go through those kind of to wrap it up. Yeah, that'd be great. Cool. So I'm just gonna go through them. Um, what is the most useful tool for stop motion? Like oh. when you're animating. Uh, if I am animating on a set, I like, I
1: it's basically like a poker. A poker. <laughs> uh, just anything that is smaller than your finger or your fingernail. So a lot of like. A lot of tweezers, a lot of little sort of they'll be like sculpture tools that are a tiny ball on the end of a stick or I literally use little sticks. Um, Anything smaller than your fingernail, you know, anything that can reach or pinch or move something that is smaller than your fingers could do. I think those are those are like the best, most go to tools I have Um, and I keep them in like a pencil case. Um, Yeah, that's for like right on set and sticky wax. Um it's it was for like sticky wax is very particularly specific. I'll get you like a link or something.
0: Sure. Yeah. I usually just use extra plasticine, but it's not yeah. uh it doesn't hold up so well. It's just available. Um I usually like I usually do dollar store runs before I try to animate and just grab random craft supplies and mm-hmm. uh, a whole bunch of wire, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if there's a name for this, but somebody asked, "What is the setup that allows someone to upload frames to the computer right away after they take a pic?" Called is there a name for that process? Oh, I saw that. I,
1: I, I, I feel like I this is like a great pop quiz because I should definitely know the answer to that, and I'm sure that there is some sort of like. Um, better industry name but i want to just say frame grabber and that goes back to like the the frame grabbers we had that were lunch boxes we called them frame grabbers um Fair enough. and they literally just took a frame and stored it so to be replayed so i don't know if there's a more i think there's a there's probably a more technical term for that these days but i don't know what it is
0: that's all right um what is what is the best lens for good depth of field and crisp close-ups
1: Good depth of field and crisp close-ups.
0: Um,
1: that that's more of a question for a DP or a camera assistant. I I know what I like to use for like um, like a crazy depth of field um, w- and and being closer up with like a a crazy type. Which is to say, oh, I know what I need to know about this question is: does great depth of field mean I can see more clearly or does great depth of field mean um, you get a nice portrait look where the where the subject is in focus and everything else is out of focus? Because for me, great depth of field is very shallow, very
0: small and and uh,
1: and uh, I mean, that's what I
0: assumed as well. So maybe what is the is there a lens specifically used for that? Like, I don't know, 50 millimeter or something like that.
1: Yeah, one direction or the other is better for it, um, and I think I want to say um, narrower, narrower lenses. Well, there's good math on this. This is again like a photography textbook thing that I'm gonna really embarrass myself if I try to answer. But I will say, like I, I like um, I, I like a much shallower depth of field. I like running it. It's more to do with your f-stop. I mean, I like running it somewhere between. Um, uh, you know, two, what is it? two eight and and five six. Um, but whereas like you're gonna get better, what the lens can do is probably going to be found somewhere between like eight and 16. Um, okay. And uh yeah, tough question to answer. that's that's a lot more that's a lot more in-depth optics question um, that there there's literally books written about that can give you a, a wide set of answers for.
0: Fair enough. I really like this next question because uh, it's something that I feel like everybody faces at some point with a character, and it's about blinking. Um, I I personally have like spent a lot of time trying to find a natural blink. Lately, mm-hmm. I've been shooting on on the the thing I'm working on right now. I'm shooting 24 frames per second, um, and I found that an open eye, one mid-eye, and then like five frames of close, and then a an op- um, mid-eye and then open eye looks pretty good. But I don't know. like, What are your... What are your rules of thumb? how long should they blink for? how often should a character blink to make it look natural? Sure I think nobody's gonna like the answer to my question but it depends mm-hmm. on the
1: character um like point is your character languid Is it a tortoise you know like is your tortoise just kind of um, sleepily blinking? is your hair um, just very rapid and blinking all the time and every time it shifts its eyes from left to right uh, it blinks. Um, I do find that you um, blink more when you change what you're looking at. So if a character is looking from left to right, I will often use a blink to hide um, moving an too. eye from left to right. Yeah, like it, it's all whatever's necessary. And so you can add character to a character depending how fast you blink the eyes um sometimes it's limited to what you what you've created i mean like if you're sculpting your own eyelids you can end up with as many as you want if i'm on a set i've got like a quarter lid that i that is on all the time to give the character just a generally sort of sleepy look or a tired look and That's their general expression. If you walk around with your eyes wide open for the whole shot, like, there's not personality there. So there tends to be some sort of relaxed eyelid. And then if that eye is going to close, if it's rapidly looking from somewhere and blinking several times, like, I'll go straight to a closed lid, you know, just because that's all it needs if I'm on twos. Um, Ones is going to be a different thing where maybe you do want, like, a half lid or maybe it makes more sense to go from a quarter open to three quarters closed to completely closed. That gives you kind of like a settle into closed and then you want to snap it open. So you go back to three quarters and then all the way to wide um, to like look at something or be shocked about something. I think um, there is a, there's an efficiency to blinks. You don't have to use them all the time you just start to get a sense of when it feels best to blink. If you're that character and you're staring at that thing, when do you blink? When does it feel natural? And okay. you, you start internalizing this stuff, and as, as a character animator, you are acting. So spend the time on set, like make the broad motions with your arms and look around with your head and find when it feels natural for you to blink um and be that character be that tortoise be that hare for a moment and just experience what it's like and observe your behavior i think that's 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 the best sort of thing to go away
0: to to go about it i was counting your blinks and you blinked 18 times while explaining that so if your character's on a podcast explaining (laughs) i'm just kidding um well part of me doesn't like that answer because i want you to just say oh you should blink every so many frames but the other side that's a really good answer is you should always be telling a story no matter what and if your character is tired or excited or staring it depends right like you have to figure yeah. that out or lying oh yeah exactly <laughs> no, but... <laughs> like, yeah that's not, that's not even a outward personality. like you can't even yes yeah, body language right so um, if you're doing that it's always gonna look it's always gonna tell a better story and just look better so that's another thing we didn't discuss yet, frames per second or ones and twos and things like that. If you're starting out, what should you know about um, how often you should be doing a frame per second?
1: I, I would say start on twos. I mean, I ones are incredible. They are also inherently taxing. Um, and when we're working on commercials or things with a short timeline, we try as much as we can just for schedule sake like working on ones takes twice the amount of time that working on twos does
0: um there and, are and sorry uh you're referring to ones and twos on 24 frames per second so right ones would be 24 frames per second and twos would essentially be 12 frames per second right and um and often we'll be physically
1: shooting two frames when we're working on twos because that way we have the option if we really need to we really need to get that nice subtle blink uh, and make sure it's captured we will like throw a one in there uh, just to, to help don't be afraid there's no hard fast set rules don't be afraid to go from twos and into ones for a minute for a fast motion and then e- ease it out into twos and you can uh, use that you can adjust timing as you go but i think to in the interest of making it easy on yourself as you're getting started um, work on twos just to, it's it's like sketching, right? Like you don't need to immediately go in and paint the Mona Lisa, like get some sketches in there, see what, see what things look like when they get put next to each other. Um, and, and I would say start on twos and then you can refine into ones and ones are, ones are a thing that I have always been pretty afraid of, but, in the last couple of years I've found them very useful I'm terrified of working on a project on ones it's like <laughs> it's just it's just so intimidating and everything's so intricately small and I I like uh I like efficiency and I like to make it happen and I want to get to the end so I try to like I, I tend to work on twos but um ones are very handy for for bullets and stuff like that <laughs> as um you know I'm, Bill Plimpton i kind of watched. the opposite
0: I'm shooting on ones right now and like just to get a normal like hand wave it takes the the like amount i'm moving the hand per frame is so tiny but it but it's so satisfying to see how smooth it yeah. looks afterwards the results um, are gorgeous yeah yeah, yeah you, <laughs> your it's, results are really it's good. so taxing and I, like i i've like have like a shoulder like strain because of it um so uh, I um, I do have a bunch more questions. Maybe I can just shoot through them. A couple more on lighting, which I feel like you answered already. One is about can you fix hotspots or vignettes in After Effects or afterwards, or do you need to reshoot? Uh,
1: it's almost easier just to say reshoot. Uh, if you don't yeah. like it, if you don't like it, reshoot it. Um, if you can, you can try to fix it a little bit. But as soon as you get what's passed called the knee. Whereas the camera is picking up like a white value that's beyond uh, like the sensor, you're not bringing that. You can't bring that detail back. It's basically a a pure white pixel um, in in this digital age. Uh, You can maybe underexpose a little bit. Like when you're when you're shooting, don't be afraid of of going just a little bit darker as long as your your blacks still have a range. The trick is finding um, where nothing in your shot is too hot or overexposed, and nothing in your shot is too uh, underexposed. Yeah. Um, because you can still play with that range in compositing. Um, and you can still kind of push or brighten something up in compositing uh, as long as you have the information there visually. So there's there's no way to take like white hot spots like back down. There's no way to provide more information there if that information hasn't been
0: shot. Fair enough. Um, The next one is, do you have any specific tips on animating on flat tables with clay and paper? I know there's a lot of uh, flat table animation or like on glass. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you have any tips on doing that?
1: Yeah, look up angle of incidence, get those lights out of the reflection, uh, like get them out of the plane that the camera can see, and then um, just go generally pretty broad i think broad is a good solution and if you're dealing with like multiple planes on like multiple layers of glass um don't be afraid to really get those glass layers apart um as long as you can get the camera higher um and use a uh, narrower lens is going to give you less distortion and a wider lens is going to make things feel deeper you know so um yeah, that's that's a quick summary on that. But yeah, I think broader lights, broader lights set farther away is very helpful for uh, for uh, down shooters.
0: Nice. Um, what is the best way to make interchangeable faces without a 3D printer? Sculpting. I know you can try clay, you can try molds, you can do Sculpey and bake it, you can do paper cutouts. I don't know what is what is what is the most economical way of doing this with still getting a really good effect.
1: I'm a paper person, even like layer it or, or do like to get a little more depth, maybe do the lips on one layer and set that space that apart from like the teeth and the the inside of the mouth. If you want, if you need a little depth in there, um, but yes, sculpt it, uh, don't be afraid of polymer clay. I would use something that, um ends up being like a hard piece because i kind of am kind of a klutz on set and i kind of i'm not a good sculptor on set i don't like to use clay on set myself i'm not a great sculptor so um i like to do all that hard work ahead of time and that way i don't have to think about sculpting while i'm replacing mouths on a puppet so i would say yeah like like a femo or sculpty uh clay that bakes hard or anything you can uh sculpt and then have it be hard if that means taking a mold off of clay and pouring plastic uh do it i think the easiest thing is going to be like a polymer clay or paper myself yeah
0: i actually saw um i think it's called the kite um it's a short film that's being produced right now i think i just finished but the character is uh, a complete puppet but then its face is just a sack of papers which is so interesting because you can just take one off and redraw a face and it's it's perfect oh great um, getting creative too, I guess. Um, the last question I have is: if you're buying an armature, uh, what is the best kind of beginner armature to start with? Um, I know you mentioned kind of making your own out of wire and clay, but are there is there like an armature you know of, or um, just one that you think is a good starter armature?
1: I don't have good. I don't have a good recommendation. You should find. Um, I know. Let's just um, question bomb. Rob Shaw is, I believe, is Sir Rob Rob on Instagram, and just uh, I'm gonna just send you straight to him because he has done a lot of um, research and got a lot of different armatures that are already made to mix and match and create his own stuff. And uh, I don't, I don't know anybody who's bought more armatures and put more mix and matched more armatures than he has. Um, I think he's a great place to start, um, but also. People have been having a lot of success, I feel, recently with Sticky Bones. That was that Kickstarter that happened a couple of years ago that are finally just got delivered maybe a couple months ago. And I'm seeing people really enjoy using them. So if those are now available, I would say look up Sticky Bones. They're not more they're not directly just skeletal armatures. They're more of a a complete human figure, but they have incredible
0: articulation um, and would help you practice character stuff. I've seen a lot of people animate those on Instagram and they're very, and and it just looks like a human too. So it's great. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, that's, I just went through the questions and that's pretty much all of them. So do you have anything else to share? Uh, I know we've been talking for like an hour and 40 minutes. No, that's <laughs> this is the longest sorry. podcast I've done so far.
1: Um, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, if I have any advice, it's just uh, stay curious, just stay curious and uh, keep exploring and, Yes, there are rules, but there are no rules.
0: I like that, yeah. Well, um, Javen, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast and sharing all of your experience and wisdom and like all these interesting thoughts on physics and whatnot. I I've, I've, i don't know if you can hear me like clicky-clacketing away on my laptop, but I've been writing everything down. I'm gonna include <laughs> a list of everything you've mentioned um, in the description of this podcast. So if you're listening and wanna check that out, Great. do so. Um, So, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yeah, it's been great to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Now, if you are still listening and you have questions for Javen or want to check out his work, you can do so by following him on Instagram under the handle jvannable or by checking out his Vimeo page where you can see his showreel and all of his short films. And just a reminder also that if you're starting out in stop motion and you're looking for a really good armature or rig, you can head over to Mark Spess's website, animateclay.com And use coupon code AIP to get 10% off any of his Bendy armatures or Bendy rigs and even a copy of Stop Motion Pro software. And that is all for now. Thank you so much for listening. Okay, bye.